you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, if you would, Galatians chapter 5. Here in a moment, we'll look at verse 19 down through 21 today. But let's pray as we get started. Father, what a joy it's been to sing uh, such incredible songs to you today. And as we just sang and Tori just mentioned, Lord, even that act, even the act of singing these songs, we could not do it apart from your grace. It's your breath. And God, we now ask for more grace that we may understand the truth of your word today. That your spirit would bring fresh um, conviction into our hearts and lives today as we consider these truths together. God, we cannot do this alone. Help us today to understand and to obey the truth of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Back in Oklahoma, uh, just about a quarter mile north of my parents' house are some hills. They're not hills that God made. They're hills that man and some giant machines made back in the 1950s. There was coal that was discovered uh, just under the surface of the ground there, and they brought in these giant stripping machines that would unearth that coal and left 150, 200, 300 foot high mounds of dirt on either side, creating a whole series of hills and valleys and ravines. Uh, perfect for kids on bikes, kids wanting to build forts. That was me and my friends and brothers. Uh, but not great at all if you wanted to have cattle on the land. If you wanted to plant some sort of crop on the land, it was ruined for those purposes. These strip pits, as they were called, were all over the place in the area in which I grew up. But in the 1990s, there was a government program called the Land Reclamation Act. And the Land Reclamation Act, the goal was to go back in and and level out the hills and valleys, uh, reseed in an attempt to make those particular spots in our area useful again. And today, you'll see some of those areas where there's cattle now grazing, and some of them they've got uh, soybeans or corn uh, growing on those fields that were once hills. Well, the letter to the Galatians tells another reclamation story. It's our reclamation story. How God reclaims us because of our sin, because of the curse that sin brought on us, we too were useless like the hills. But God sent Jesus, His Son, who by His life, by His death, by His resurrection, reclaims us from the curse. Galatians actually says it this way, He becomes the curse for us, taking it upon Himself. Therefore, making us useful again 
useful. We've been reclaimed. We've been, another great word, redeemed for his purposes. Because of Christ, because of the spirit that now works inside of us, lives that were once cursed are now free to be fruitful, to yield a life of purpose. Yet, even amidst that, we still struggle, don't we? We still struggle to be fruitful. The spirit battles against the flesh. The flesh battles against the spirit. Those verses that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. And they produce a variety of fruit in our lives. Sometimes that fruit is, is bad, right? And sometimes the fruit that's produced in our lives is good. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to be spending time considering that good fruit of the Spirit, but today we're going to focus our attention on the bad fruit of the flesh that Paul lists out for us in verses 19, 20, and 21. If you'd follow along as I read aloud. The works of the flesh, actually, let's jump back to verse 16. Let's start a little bit earlier and get a run at it. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. An important point that I want to make before we begin to look at each of these fruit that are listed is that not all of these are actions. Many of these are attitudes. It's not always about what you're particularly doing. It's about the way you're thinking, the way you're believing in life. We find in this list that Paul actually creates four groupings. The first group are the first three that are listed for us, and they have to do with sexual sins. And that first fruit that is listed is sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia. Our English word pornography is derived from this particular word. It involves sexual behavior between people or even indirect participation in uh, immoral sexual behavior as an audience. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, self-gratification. This word summarizes any sexual behavior that takes place outside of the bounds created by God within the marriage covenant. It's a catch-all word as he begins this list. Impurity is the next word. In the context, it's sexual immorality. It has to do with moral uncleanness. This word would be used in the medical field to describe uh, oozing and, and, uh, and infected wounds. It's something that's impure, something that people shouldn't want anything to do with. Regarding this particular one word, this word, one author writes this, perhaps no sexual act has taken place, but the person exhibits a crudeness or an insensitivity in sexual matters that may offend other people, leading other people to, to conclude something about that person's character. 
An example today would be maybe the excessive use of sexual humor that we find in our culture. Uh, Double meanings in conversations and phrases that people use. Paul also addresses this issue in Ephesians 5, verse 3 and 4. I'll just read these verses to you. He says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. And then he says this, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These things are out of place for those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. The last one in the first group is sensuality or depravity, debauchery. It emphasizes a lack of restraint. Unbridled passions that run wild and free. It refers uh, to sexual indulgence that happens without shame. And in, in my lifetime, and no doubt in yours, we have seen that, that shame bar move significantly. In our present culture, in many circles, pornography is no longer a shameful thing. It's widely accepted. Homosexuality and other sins are no longer shameful things. They are embraced. When the second group, Paul begins to list things about man's religious system, It's just two words, idolatry and sorcery. The Shriner writes this about this word idolatry. He says, the fundamental sin in Paul's theology is the failure to praise and thank God for his goodness and to turn from the worship of idols to the worship of the one true God. Idolatry is a matter of the heart, always a matter of the heart. It's anything that I put before God in my life. Idolatry runs rampant in all of us. Every day we battle against the idols. We'll create idols of of wanting control. Um, Idols of of wanting uh, to to, uh, give in to fear. Idols of money, possessions, power. The list could go on and on. The word sorcery here is regularly condemned in Old Testament Jewish literature. We could do a quick study on that. We will not. But instead of trusting God, people try to manipulate their circumstances. People try to bring about an end that they desire. Sorcery then turns one from trusting in the living God to trying to depend upon other sources. This is why we as Christians still wholeheartedly rebuke issues related to to, to tarot cards and, and palm reading and any of those things that may exist. Uh, we've seen over the last um, de- several decades just an entrance of, of phrases and terminology from, from Hinduism, Buddhism into our culture in a sense of trying to explain what we see around us, not in terms of who God is, but in terms of ourselves. Words like karma, luck, all of those words that, that tend to diminish who God is and what he is trying to do. The third group Paul deals with is sins of human relationship. The biggest group that he has here. The first word that he uses here is, you'll see it, enmity. This is the idea of an enemy, hostility or, or hatred. It, resolve, it, it refers to unresolved conflicts among uh, us. As I say, that word unresolved conflicts. Many of you probably have particular relationships that come to your mind. 
Who do I have unresolved conflict with or hateful attitudes that lead us to strife? The next word that he gives, it's the result of a hateful attitude towards other people. Words like competition or rivalry. Conflict describe this idea of strife. Think about it. Strife opposes humility. It desires to one-up other people. I want to be better than you. I want to be right. I want to win are the words of strife. He wants to be king of the mountain. James has a lot to say in his letter about enmity and strife, particularly chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 4 begins with this particular question. Where do conflicts and where do quarrels come from? Why are we in conflict with other people? And James answers the question, is it not from this, your own passions that are at war within you? He doesn't point where we think he's going to point to the other person. He says the strife begins in your own heart, in your own life. In opposition to enmity and strife, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God. Jealousy often has a positive connotation to it. Signifies a zeal, a passion for God, a zeal or passion for what's right. But here it means to be consumed with self-glorification. That often presents itself in resentfulness when other people have what we believe we deserve. Why do they get that and I don't? Why do they have health and I don't? Why do they have that job and I don't? Why do they have those kids or that wife or that husband and I don't? Jealousy can begin to rule in us. The advertising industry is a, what, a tr trillion dollar industry? Because they know how to push these particular fruit of the flesh buttons in our lives to get us to buy the things that we don't have and others do. Think of the opposing fruit of this one, gratitude. Being thankful for what God has given you. Being content with those things. Paul continues in the list. There's fits of anger, outbursts of anger, referring to savage flashes of anger that are poured out on others with an uncontrollable temper. Leaves people injured in its wake. The opposing view, self-control, patience to show towards others. Rivalries, selfish ambition. It does not focus on the good of others, but it grasps after honor and praise for oneself. This is the person who will crush another person to get what they want. They'll walk all over them so that they can accomplish what they want to accomplish. Many churches have been destroyed. <coughs> Many ministries have been destroyed because people preferred their own interests over the interests of other people. Rivalry always leads to dissension, the next word. Strong disagreements, quarrels that divide and begin to sever relationships. Uh, one commentator writes this, the attitude that can quickly develop between people when a disagreeable attitude prevails. Whatever the topic or issue, as soon as one side states its opinion, the other party immediately champions the opposing view as a matter of principle. Divisions then, or factions, is the inevitable fruit of dissension. However, this describes the tendency then now to look for allies to look for people that you can put on your own team, 
to form power blocks. This is why we begin to justify ourselves to other people. Well, here's why I'm right and they're wrong. We begin to gossip to try to uh, plant seeds of doubt about the other person's motives and, and we begin to sin in many other ways, trying to build our own team. As I thought of that this week, I thought that's the garbage of politics. The, div the dissensions, the divisions, why that's no place in the church of Christ. We can talk about policy, sure, but the garbage of politics only divides. It only causes dissension. What about envy? Very similar to jealousy, it concentrates on the desire to possess what other people have. You're not satisfied with the gifts that God has given you. It's a grudging spirit that cannot bear or contemplate someone else's prosperity. I hope you can see that in this third group, the biggest group he has, it violates the clear command that we've already seen in the letter to love your neighbor. All of them. They're not built upon love. These fruits stand in contrast to the second half of the Ten Commandments. Don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet. The, these fruits stand in contrast to Jesus' instruction in Matthew 5 about how we are to treat one another, even loving our enemies. This group's just as bad as the first group. I grew up hearing a lot about that first group. Don't commit sexual immorality. Got it. But oftentimes the people that were telling me don't commit sexual immorality were in divisions and rivalries and fighting. It's all fruit of the flesh. It's all born of idolatry. The last group is two, drunkenness and orgies. Thomas Schreiner writes this, he says, those who give themselves over to, to revelry and wild parties demonstrate that they're still under the control of the old Adam rather than living in the new age inaugurated by Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that Paul has in mind here many of the, the, the parties that would take place to worship the pagan gods in their temples as part of their practice. But don't think for a minute that that doesn't apply to, to many of the things that we could involve ourselves in today. Parties that involve drunkenness and would lead to other sins as a result. But, but Paul isn't quite done with his list. The 16th thing that he writes is this. And things like these. This means Paul's list is only partial. There are plenty more works of the flesh that are not listed here. As a matter of fact, if you go through the letters of the New Testament, you'll find many what we call vice lists. Not just in Paul's letters, but in, in the other writer's letters, lists of the fruit of the flesh. What's missing? What's missing from this list that we often see in our life? What about lying? What about cheating? Works of the flesh. Worry. Anxiety, fear, greed, bitterness, revenge, gluttony. I mentioned that one a couple weeks ago. Laziness. The list could go on. Paul's list, though, does come with a warning. Notice verse 21, the second part. He says, you do these, and you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
I'm warning you, he says, as I've warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom do not act this way. Those who are Christ, who he has set free, should not be described by this list of works of the flesh. But if you're like me and you're considering the list, you're saying, I, Christ has set me be free, but, but sometimes, man, I struggle with those things. Sometimes I give in to fits of anger. So, sometimes I envy what other people have. Sometimes sexual lust is strong. It's important that we note the tense of this participle verb that Paul uses when he says, do such things. Sometimes this stuff can't come through in our translation. But the verb that Paul uses here is a present tense. So here's the meaning that it gives. Those who make a practice of doing such things. Those whose lives would be described by habitually doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're being warned that the fruit of our life proves if we have the Spirit or we don't. If you've ever read uh, John's first letter, uh, 1 John, we, we just read that through the church's reading plan a few weeks ago. He's very to the point that if you hate your brother, then you're not of Christ. If you don't love completely, you're not of Christ. And Paul is, uh, John uses those same terminology, uses that same present tense. If you make a practice of these things. Uh, let me let you hear what Tim Keller writes. He says, for someone continually to indulge the sinful nature without battling against it, to show that the Son has redeemed them and that the Spirit has not renewed them, Paul is not looking here to undermine Christian assurance, but he's aiming to banish in us complacency. So let's consider a few things as we think through this list. The first one is this. What works of the flesh? What works of the flesh do you see in your own life? What works of the flesh are missing from this list? but they're not missing from you. I already mentioned a couple weeks ago, gluttony was one of the things I mentioned. Pouting was the other one. I don't even think Faith was here to hear that one. She's resounding amen. Yes, pouting when I don't get what I want. Sinful wrong. This is why the psalmist prayed that prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my way, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because we want to ask the Spirit, hey, what's in me? What fruit of the flesh is in my life? Do you desire then, as you think of those things, those, those struggles that are yours, do you desire to put those things out of your life? If so, that's the evidence of the Spirit at work in you. There is a desire to, to push those things away. These fruit that we've listed, these fruit of the flesh in us and others should grieve us. 
Why? Because they destroy. And they lead to death. And it's not just that they, they destroy you. I'm not here just to warn you today. Hey, if you keep doing these things, it's just going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your relationships. It's going to ruin the people around you. These fruit are like cancer, and it just spreads from one to the next to the next. So we have to put off this fruit before we can put on the good fruit. And I realize I'm throwing some new terminology at you here, but it's helpful language. We have to put off the fruit of the flesh before we can put on the fruit of the Spirit. And this process requires for us to renew our minds. So, so to help us understand this, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to, to Ephesians chapter 4. One book over from Galatians. You're right there. Ephesians 4, verse 17. writing his letter to the church at Ephesus. He says this, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay, same terminology is used in Galatians already. Walk in the Spirit, he says. Don't walk in the flesh. He says, don't walk as unbelievers do. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding of rights. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become callous and they've given themselves up, here's some of that fruit, to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not how you have learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off, put on, by renewing your mind. If it's easier to think of it in terms of, of clothing, you've got dirty clothes on, and you need to take those dirty clothes off, put them off, and replace them with something that's clean and appropriate. The process of putting off the fruit of the flesh, putting on the fruit of the Spirit by renewing our minds is what we call progressive sanctification. The Bible describes it as being made holy or being conformed to the image of Christ or growing in Christ's likeness. Those are the phrases that we often use around here to describe this particular process. In fact, just this last week, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he writes. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because as it is written, be holy for I am holy. What does Peter say? Put off the corrupt desires and put on holiness. So what does this process entail? Well, the past couple of weeks, I've spent some time rereading one of my favorite authors. Um, his name is Jerry Bridges. 
And uh, Jared Bridges, anything you can ever get your hands on by him, you will be encouraged and edified significantly. His name's going to come up a lot as we move into the fruit of the Spirit. I'll just give you that warning now because his wisdom is going to help us to understand love, joy, peace, and all of those things that are coming. But his particular book that I've been rereading is The Pursuit of Holiness, uh, one of his classic books. Central to putting off and putting on is renewing our minds. And so we have to start there. And there are two necessary powers. I I don't use that word lightly. Two necessary powers that are involved for us to be able to renew our minds and hearts. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. If we will grow, we must take in the Word of God, the Scriptures that He's given us. And the power isn't in the, the great, you know, you've got a, you've got a calf skin cover Bible or, or the layout is wonderful. The power is not in the layout. The power is in the truth and the source of the words. They're God's words, and when God speaks, what happens? Universes come into existence. There is power in the Word of God. When we consider God's words, His good instruction, it brings conviction, doesn't it? Even as we just worked through that list, I have no doubt that each of us was struck by at least one thing, if not many things, convicted that that fruit of the flesh is evident in my life. That's the conviction that the Word of God can bring to us. But, but we don't stop with conviction. The word doesn't say, I just want to convict you. It, it calls us then to commitment. Will I obey? What will I do with the word that God has spoken? God, our creator, our redeemer, he says this to us. Love your enemy. Do good to those who aren't nice to you, that's my, my paraphrase, who are meanie heads, however you want to do it. You be good to those who do wrong to you. Hmm. For most of us, somebody probably came to mind even when I said the word enemy. It may not even be a person you directly know. It may be a person you know through media, some politician, Have we loved them? That's the sting of conviction that God's word should bring, right? Have I shown kindness to that person? Have I prayed that prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But conviction isn't enough. It's not enough to sit there and say, no, I have not. God's word calls us to commitment then. Will I obey? Will I listen to his instruction? Will I become a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word? Consider these uh, both powerful and very painful words by Bridges. He says this, it's time for us Christians 
to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say that we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use terms of obedience and disobedience. When I say I'm defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I'm disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we're defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We have chosen to entertain lustful thoughts or to harbor resentment or to shade the truth a little. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. And you may be saying, I can't do that. I've had the battle. I, I, I've been there. I don't have the strength in me to love that way. And what you say is absolutely true. That's where the second discipline comes in. We need the Word of God to bring conviction and to show us what commitment and obedience looks like. But what's the second power? Prayer. Prayer does what? Prayer engages the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Prayer is what brings the power to bear so that we can produce godliness, spiritual Christ-like fruit. We can't focus enough on prayer. We can't pray enough as it comes to ourselves as individuals, as it comes to us as a church corporately. Prayer always has to play a more significant role in our lives. I just mentioned to the guys this morning a quote uh, that I saw this week from, from Oswald Chambers. Did you say uncle? He said it's his uncle. Um, it's, it's not. Uh, but it, it is something to this degree. Prayer doesn't equip us for the greater thing. Prayer is the greater thing. And so friends, we can't pray enough. And, and here's, here's where I often fail. Because I know the word of God. I've had the opportunity to grow up in church my entire life, to go through seminary, to pastor for uh, a lot of years now, and study scripture time and time and time again. I know what the word says. I, I know what obedience looks like. But because I don't pray, there's no power, there's no ignition, there's no fire. We have to make time for prayer. How can we pray more? Putting off means that we must begin to say about our fruit of the flesh, our sin, what God says about it. You know what he says about this sin, this list of things? He hates them. He hates them. Paul said it so well to the Romans. He said, you have to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. 
I have to get to the point in my life where I hate the sin that is destroying me. That I hate the sin that is destroying you. Because that's God's perspective on it. And, and I would say this, if you're not there, if you're still playing around with your sin and you don't, you don't hate it, you like having it around. We've all been there. We'll all be there at other times. It's a sin you know should grieve you, you know you should hate, then you have to get in this book and be freshly convicted by God's words. Uh, you, you can't just take my word for it and say, hey, what you're, what you're doing right now, this fruit of the flesh, it's, it's bad, it's not good. You have to hear what God says. Which means you gotta open it up, you gotta study it, you gotta memorize it. You gotta reacquaint yourself with a holy God who says this is evil, this is wicked, this is wrong, this is destroying you, this is destroying the people around you. Get in the word of God. That in itself is an act of humility. God says this, the one that I will look to, Isaiah 66, is the one who trembles at my word. Who understands I am the one who is speaking. And once we recognize our sin, we confess it to God. We confess it to others if necessary, which typically it is. We need other people in our lives. And then we turn from it. But when we turn from it, we have to turn to something else. Yes, that's rain. For those of you who didn't know, it's, it's been a while, right? It's this water that falls out of the sky. Yeah, it's amazing. But we don't just turn from our fruit of the flesh and turn to nothing. There's not a neutral in life. We have to turn to the fruit of the Spirit. Our, our envy and jealousy has to be replaced with gratitude. Our, our sexual immorality has to be placed, replaced with purity. Uh, there is a counter fruit to all of these things. And so we turn to Christ. We turn to His character. And we put on the fruit of the Spirit. Notice Galatians 5, verse 22, picking up where we left off a moment ago. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, I left out a word there. But, the contrast, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul goes on to say, against such things, there's no law readily accepted. And those, notice this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. What is he saying? You are free in Christ to be fruitful in love. Joy, peace, patience. In the coming weeks, we're going to consider each of these fruit. We're going to look 
with these principles. Again, what does it mean to put off and put on and renew our minds? And we're going to study through each of these, working to apply them into our own lives. That's going to begin particularly with love on November the 8th. I'm excited to be able to walk through these things as we bring this year to a close because we need more fruit of the Spirit. Absolutely so. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me for a moment. What fruit of the flesh do you see in your life? What fruit of the flesh has the Word brought conviction to today? Will you confess it? Will you repent and turn from it? Will you pray now, engaging the Spirit of Christ to empower you to not only turn from it, but to hate it? This right here could be a powerful, powerful moment for you in your life to say, I'm done with it. I want the fruit of Christ to grow in me. So I want to give you an opportunity to pray.